Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to John chapter 12, and we are going to listen to Jesus preach on Palm Sunday afternoon. What we read today, I believe, is, is the afternoon of Palm Sunday. That, that morning, I'll start at verse 29. That morning, he rode into the city on the foal of a donkey. Now, so he's got, he's got a mother, apparently, mother donkey. I don't know if it followed. Usually foals want to stay with mom. And uh, then, a, then it's a smaller donkey, which was clearly old enough to bear a human. And uh, he rode in on that, and the crowd heard that he was coming, and they, they were just all stirred up because he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. That word was going out. Everybody who saw that it was, was just evangelizing with it. They were going all over the city telling people, uh, and all the pilgrims coming in for Passover, he raised a man four days dead. You know, So when they hear he's coming... The crowd runs out the east side of the, of the city there, across the Kidron, they pour up the, the, the road that runs diagonally across the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is coming in from Bethany, which is a couple miles that direction. And uh, when they met him, they got in front of him, behind him, and people started uh, shouting, Hosanna, save us now. And they began to wave palm branches, but particularly put those palm branches in the, in the road. And then they also took off their coats and they laid those like a carpet. So what they were doing was announcing, you are Messiah, and we are making a carpet for you to ride upon. As you enter into Jerusalem, and God seats you on Zion, his holy mountain. You know, in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is about the Messiah. And in there, it, it actually uses the word Messiah. It's one of the few places where that term is actually used. It's, it's, it's Psalm 2. And it says... Uh, it says, the Lord says uh, to these enemies, to all of the, the Gentile kings and their judges, he says, I, he, he says, you'll surely speak to them in, in your fury and, and uh, uh, talk to them in what, your wrath. And, uh, and the Lord has said, for I have set my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Uh, and, and then he will rule them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. And, and so this is what they're thinking. Okay, you're that guy. You're going to shatter them like earthenware. You're going to set us free. And they're laying their coats. So it's, that's what they're saying. And then he's riding in on the foal of a donkey, referring to Zechariah 9. And he's saying, I will speak a message of peace. And I will indeed capture the Gentile nations. But I'll do it with a message of peace. That's exactly what Zechariah 9 says, by the way. So there's this contest of wills, this huge clash of wills going on. It's not a parade. It's a, it's a political rally that's going on on Palm Sunday. And Jesus is defying it, absolutely defying the will of the people as he rides in and says, I have come for a different salvation. He gets to the temple and he looks around. And what does he find in the temple? He finds that the sellers uh, of, of, of the animals... You know, the, the sheep and the things to sacrifice and the money-changing tables and all have been put back in the court of the Gentiles. Two years earlier, 
First thing he did when the first time as is he's risen up as the Messiah, he arrives at the temple. There all of that nonsense is. It had been put in by the house of Annas uh, as a fundraiser, making money. Now they charge taxes or they maybe run the sales. So it's a great fundraiser for them. He comes in and pushes over the tables, takes a, a cord of, of, of things and drives the animals. It could be, uh, Josephus said, 3,000, 3,500 animals on that platform at a time, uh, those uh, 30 acres. So he's driving them out of there. Uh, he did it before. They're back. They brought them all back. That's way too much money to, to let that radical who's it from, north, from the north uh, drive them out. So they put all of that garbage right back in the temple. He rides in on Palm Sunday, comes to the temple, and, and it says, and he looked around. <laughs> what did he do? He went, you're back. That's what he did. He looked around. You're back. He didn't do anything that day. He has the dialogue. I'm going to read you today. We're going to look at it. But the next day, Monday, he came in, and as he's walking in, not riding in this time, he's walking in, he passes a fig tree. I told you that. And the fig tree has no figs on it, but it has lots of leaves. Okay, and I've told you that fig trees put out fruit. At the same time, they put out leaves. So this is a barren tree with lots of leaves. It's the representative of Israel. It's the representative of Israel's leadership. The fig tree is a symbol for Israel. So here comes Messiah to his fig tree looking for fruit for God. And there is no fruit, only leaves. You see it? A very prophetic moment. And he curses the fig tree. And then he will, he will uh, uh, go on into the, to the city and he will again drive them out. We have another event where he cleanses that whole uh, uh, huge court of the Gentiles, with all of the sellers and stuff, and then he will come back one more day uh, and have more. So we're on Palm Sunday afternoon, and this is the conversation he has. And we want to we hear, because he's going to talk about unchangeable truths. Father, would you open our ears, open our eyes to see the things of God. Lord Jesus, we would see you today. Even as we read the word, can we watch you? You are our discipler. You're our teacher. You're our risen Lord. We want to follow and be like you. I pray for the grace to speak your word, Lord, so that we hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in John 12. I'll start at verse 29, and I'm going to go uh, quickly, God willing, down to verse 48. Jesus had these people come and uh, ask to talk to him. He said, really, no. Uh, my hour has come, the sorrow of the cross is over him. Uh, then he said, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out, in verse 28, came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So that's a remarkable moment. So the crowd of people who stood by heard it and were saying it thundered. Some others were saying the, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world would be cast out. Would you read verse 31 with me? Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And then he says this, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Would you read verse 32? And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. 
But he was saying this to indicate what kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ, the Messiah, is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? In case you ever wondered what they thought of when they heard the term Son of Man, there's your answer. They, think that mean, they know it means the Christ. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is, is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and notice, he went away and hid himself from them. We're told in Mark that he went back to Bethany. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. That means most weren't, because some are. In fact, some of, John's about to say some of the Sanhedrin are believing. In fact, he uses the word many. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the salvation of the Lord. I mentioned this. Isaiah says that, asks that question, after he has just said that the Messiah will be savaged, his appearance will not be, be, be even recognizable. Thus, he, Isaiah says, he will sprinkle, which is what priests do. They take the hyssop and they sprinkle the blood, they atone. So he will sprinkle many nations. He will sprinkle, actually, he doesn't say nations. It says goyim, the Gentiles, the, the, the non-Jews. And then he says, who will believe what I'm saying? Uh, among my people. And that's, so John brings that out. For this reason, verse 39, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and, and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. And I'm coming back to that later. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. And he spoke of him. So John says, Isaiah saw the Messiah's glory. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers, now that would be your Sanhedrin members, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, the, this, the ultra-Orthodox, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me does not and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. And then he says, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father gave me what to say. And he says, and I've spoken it, and it's eternal life. Truth doesn't change, especially spiritual truth. The spiritual world is not a myth. There are lots of myths and fairy tales, invented stories about gods, goddesses, and how the world was created. But that doesn't change spiritual truth. It only makes it harder to find. The fact that there are people who say wrong things doesn't mean right things don't exist. You following this? 
I know there's a, there's a million voices saying all kinds of stuff. But because there's a lot of foolishness doesn't mean there's no truth. It just means there's a lot of foolishness. It means you have to look through the weeds to find the, find the, find the gem. It's, it's all covered over with all of these opinions and this, this, this kind of things. But it doesn't mean there isn't truth. And truth, the truth is, there is a God who made us. He is holy, and He is going to hold us accountable for our words, thoughts, and actions unless we choose His path of salvation, whether we believe those facts or not. What took place between Jesus and the crowd on that Palm Sunday afternoon was a battle of wills. Most of them were willing to believe in Him so long as He let them decide what kind of Savior He would be. They wanted to mold him like clay into the person they felt they needed. If he would let them do that, then they would follow him passionately. But if he continued to talk about sin and insist that he was going to die violently, they would move on and find someone else. And in time, they did, and the result was catastrophic. There would be men who would rise up and say, I am the Messiah and the kind of Messiah you want. I'll grab a sword and lead you all. And millions died over the next hundred years in a couple of, of events like that. Yet in spite of the pressure, Jesus refused to change his message. Every time they argued with him, he simply repeated the same truths. Why? Why didn't he compromise with them? Why didn't he at least emphasize those truths they liked and de-emphasize the ones they didn't? Any skilled communicator understands the mood of their audience and quickly recognizes which elements in the message work and which don't. But Jesus refused to do that. He wouldn't even debate with them. Instead, he warned them that they would be sorry if they didn't listen. Let's revisit that Palm Sunday afternoon and hear Jesus proclaim those unchangeable truths. And let's not react the way many on that, in that crowd did. Let's identify those spiritual realities and believe them with all our heart. And while we have the light, let's believe in the light so that we may become children of light. It says within a... I want to retell you this. I want you to see what I'm saying. Jesus is speaking these unchangeable truths. The crowd is struggling with these truths. There's this clash going on uh, in, that, in that setting. Within a few days, it would become much more difficult to believe. He, said, he says, while you have the light, believe in the light, because the darkness will come. And then he uses the word, it will overtake you. Did you see that? The word means to seize and take down into submission. Uh, I, I was watching a thing on PBS with this about zebras. <laughs> you know, they're always going to have the lion. You know, and so here comes this lion chasing the zebra. You know, and his claws go into the thing and it drags it down. That's the word, catalamano. Seize and pull down. Jesus says, if you don't follow the light, the darkness will capture you, and pull you down. It will seize you. It's aggressive. So he says... While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. That means men and women. It would be much more difficult. So he asked them to take that step of faith right then and there. Did you notice? He was given an altar call. He said, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. He was inviting them to believe that he, he was who he said he was. And he would do what he said he would do. And thereby become children of God. 
Yet on that Palm Sunday afternoon, few responded to his invitation. So he slipped away from the crowd and returned to Bethany. In case any of his readers missed the point, John quotes Isaiah's question, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah wrote those words in the middle of his prophecy about the Messiah dying as a guilt offering. Isaiah's words. Guilt offering specifically says that for the sins of Jews and Gentiles. And as he wrote, he wondered who would believe him. John says Isaiah was given the answer to that question when the Lord called him to become a prophet. The Lord told Isaiah that he was sending him to speak to a nation that would not listen to him. In fact, his words would only cause their hearts to become harder because they would refuse to repent. God said the land would be devastated and the people exiled, yet a small portion would remain in the land, and that would be enough to allow his plan of salvation to continue. Let me stop a second. Isaiah, when he's called by the Lord, you remember this? He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So apparently what he saw was the Shekinah of glory God, the, the light of God pouring down into the, into the uh, sanctuary, into the temple. And, and he says, uh, in all of that, he said, I, I immediately felt my own sin. You know, it came over him and he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. So probably vile language, dishonesty. We, we were corrupt in what we say. And, he, and, and, he, and, he, and, and then an angel of the Lord, actually a cherubim, uh, took uh, tongs and picked up one of the coals and, uh, from, the, from the fire of the, of, that he saw, uh, the fire of God, the brazier of uh, coals, and touched his lips with it. And then the Lord says, uh, who will go and speak for us? Uh, who will go? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then the Lord says, okay, here's your assignment. You are going to go and you are going to speak to a people and they will not listen to you. Have a great time. Uh, they, 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 and he says, they will resist you. They will not hear you. And uh, they will, uh, in fact, he says, you're going to prophesy. I want you to speak the truth to them. But they've already hardened their hearts to me. They're already stubborn and resistant. And so when you speak truth, you'll only make them worse. Not only are they not going to repent, they're just going to get harder, deafer, blinder, more stubborn inside. You'll make them worse. Go for it, young man. And then he says what you would say and I would say, how long do we have to do this? And Lord says, till the land is devastated. Till there's nobody left, until, you know, almost nobody, he'll, I'll qualify that in a second. He says, until the houses are brought down and the homes are abandoned. In other words, the exile, until my people are dragged out of here by their enemies, because they'll not hear me. And then he says, but I'll do this, says the Lord. He says, I, I will leave a tenth portion, a tithe. I will leave some people in the land. He says, it will be like an oak tree or a terebinth which if it's cut down, sends up roots. Some trees, you know, you cut them down and they're gone. Other trees, you cut them down and they just keep coming. Anybody has a cherry tree, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you all through the lawn. Yeah. It's, it's like it. So he says, he says they'll, they'll come up life. And, he, and then he makes this fabulous statement. He says, he says uh, the tree will be cut down, but he says, but the seed 
remains in its trunk. Seed, yeah, the seed of the woman, Messiah, is hidden in the trunk of the tree that's been cut down. It's really prophetic. It's incredibly. That's why John says Isaiah saw his glory. He got it. He totally got it. So he says the seed will remain in its trunk. In other words, I'm going to preserve a people so that I can keep my promise. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. I'm going to keep my promise that the seed of the woman, the Messiah, will be born. Hallelujah. Aren't we grateful? That particular verse of Isaiah that John quotes, and I want you to see, uh, remember this again, that, that verse. That's a troubling verse, if you take it. On the surface, sounds as if God deliberately meant to prevent people from understanding Isaiah's message. If that were the case, then by that action, he would be the cause of their unbelief. Remember the one it says there? He quotes Isaiah, and it says, I will, oh, maybe I have to close my Bible. It says, I will harden the hearts, and it's at the end of your thing, too. I could look there. But, oh, no, I have to open my Bible. Um, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and I be converted and heal them. Doesn't that sound mean? It sounds like, well, God, how dare you uh, be upset they didn't repent? You hardened their hearts. You blinded their eyes. You, you're the, you're the, you're the, and then you blame them for not believing? That's so unfair. Come on. If that were the case, then by that action, he would be the cause of their unbelief. And they would be innocent victims of his cruel will. But to interpret it that way would only be possible if someone isolates that verse from the rest of the book of Isaiah. In the first chapter alone, God's desire that the people of Israel repent is expressed in such statements as this. Why don't you read it out loud with me? Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Does that sound like God divinely, predestinately, sealing up people and keeping them? Or does it sound like willful choice? It's absolutely willful choice. No question about it. It's, it's people, God is begging them. He, I love that passage. Don't you come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. He says, come, come, repent, please. Turn your hearts. When I preach well, you'll hear kind of angelic music. Uh, <laughs> and he, he's just begging them. He's saying, come on. In that context of having pleaded with them to repent, he says to Isaiah, they've already decided. And he says, you're going to go and you're going to speak truth. Because see, truth spoken to a rebellious heart makes it worse. Truth spoken to a rebellious heart makes it more rebellious. It, every time, if you've decided not to believe, every time God speaks the truth to you and you begin to feel conviction, you know what you do? You lock up. You go, no. You're not going to get me. You deafen your ears. You blind your eyes. You harden your heart. The problem is that's, that's, that's a very difficult thing to reverse. You don't revert back to neutral. 
Every time you harden, it's harder to receive him the next time. So he says to Isaiah, you're going to make them harder. But I will faithfully speak the word to them anyway. So God is speaking to people he knows won't listen. And, I, and here comes John and says, and Jesus was too. He was going through the same experience. All right. And the people's willful rebellion is repeatedly pointed to as the cause of their problem. Listen, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? Would you say rebellion? You see, that's totally willful. So when John quotes Isaiah's statement, he has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts so that they might not see with their eyes and understand with the heart, and I will heal them. He's comparing the crowd's resistance to Jesus' message to ancient Israel's resistance to Isaiah's message. He's saying the underlying cause of that resistance is the same. People desire to live independently from God's discipline. And he's likely implying that by resisting Jesus, those individuals would become harder to reach in the future. Jesus himself had referred to that same prophecy earlier in his ministry. Every time you hear the Lord, use the phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Remember this? All the time, he's referring to that prophecy. That's exactly what he's saying. It's amazing that human beings are capable of assuming that we can change spiritual realities by simply changing what we choose to believe. It's as though we think God must become who we want him to be. That he would cease to exist if we decided to stop believing in him. You may have heard someone say something like this. I can't believe in a God who would... Or, if I were God, I would never. And for some people, in their own minds, that settles the matter. The ancient Greeks had a word for pride when it becomes so severe that it brings a person's downfall. They called it hubris. Hubris deceives its victims into making a fatal mistake by believing that they are wiser, stronger, or better than they really are. And what we're watching take place on that Palm Sunday afternoon was hubris. People thinking they could alter spiritual reality by believing whatever they chose to believe. Jesus saw what was happening, and it grieved him. Yet he didn't change his message. Facts are facts. All he could do was warn them that a day was coming when an unchanging God would judge them by their response to his unchanging truth. Isn't that a good phrase? Why don't you say it with me? An unchanging God would judge them by their, his, their response to his unchanging truth. So what are those unchangeable truths that Jesus insisted so steadfastly on proclaiming because he said those who believe them would become children of God? And why are they so offensive? Why did so many people reject them? Though the sorrow of the cross had already swept over him on that Sunday afternoon, Jesus still reached out to the crowd gathered around him. His love for them compelled him to speak. John says he even cried out, inviting anyone who would want eternal life to come to him. John records at least nine unchangeable, offensive, life-giving truths contained in the words he spoke that day. Let's hear them and consider each one. Number one, judgment. Jesus said, now judgment is upon this world. 
and warned that the Father will judge those who reject him. He didn't avoid the uncomfortable topic of judgment. In fact, he brought it up all the time. He clearly believed that there will be a judgment day, and those who refuse the grace he offers will be condemned. That offends our self-righteousness. It means our best efforts aren't enough, and it provokes our rebellious nature. It makes us angry. How dare God sit in judgment over us and hold us accountable to his standards? Rather than admit failure and accept mercy, many will choose to cling to the goodness of their own deeds and trust that those will be enough they won't be. You've heard it, I'll bet. People say, well, if God's fair, I've, I've, got, I've done more good things than I've done bad. Uh, I'm, I'm a lot better than a lot of people I know. I mean, I, 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 I think I'm a good person. I think, he, you know, he's not going to put people like me away. What, what are you trusting? That you're good enough. You're going to make it on your goodness. You won't. You won't. And, and so it's just, it's just one, of those, one of those moments. Uh, I know right now one of the things, you know, they got all kinds of books on how to, how to grow your church. And, and people are, are, are following a bunch of this stuff. Churches are now refusing to where many churches are. Use the word sin. It's offensive. You just don't want to use that word. Judgment. You certainly don't want to use that word. Hell, who remembers even that exists? Uh, blood, I, I just, in the last few weeks, heard of a church that just does not want you to use the word blood, doesn't want to sing it, uh, just wants to keep that. It's kind of unpleasant. Uh, uh, repentance, uh, that, just, that just goes off. So they, they don't offend people. It's considered smart marketing. It's smart marketing. I mean, you come on, you don't want to offend your market. And you want, you want people to come, you've you got you to gotta tell them, uh, you know, at least don't, don't do things that make them mad, you know. And the idea is that if you kind of hook them a little bit, get them to come with some sort of message they like to hear, then you can kind of sneak in the other stuff later. Problem is people aren't stupid, you know, and, and you are if you think they are. Uh, People spot it a mile away. It's, it's called bait and shift, you know, switch. And they know how you, how you bring them is how you keep them. How you bring them is how you keep them. Do you notice Jesus does not go off message? And he's having a bad, a bad market resistance to his message. <laughs> it, it is not. He's using all the wrong words. I mean, they didn't like it any more than you do. <laughs> I do. I mean, it's just, it, 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 he, but he's, there he is. I just want you to see, our Lord felt these, these things are so significant and so true that they cannot be compromised. They have to be said, even if people won't hear them, just as Isaiah, as the Lord said to Isaiah, you're going to tell truth they won't like and they won't hear it. It'll make them harder, but you'll tell them anyway, because I'm a faithful God. Number two, Satan. He called Satan the ruler of this world. Now, Satan isn't the rightful ruler. God is. But by his temptations and deception, Satan is able to gain control over people. He is able to lead whole societies into destruction and individuals to eternal death. By pointing to Satan, Jesus exposes our chains. He announces to us that we are not free at all. We're slaves. That, that offends us. 
We prefer to live under the delusion that we are in control, that we chart the course of our own lives. He insults us by reminding us that if God's not our master, we're constantly being manipulated by an enemy who wants to destroy us. We laugh at the idea of a devil, little horns on some kind of guy, a little pitchfork, and we, we, we joke about that. The Bible says this, you're, you, you have a choice. There's not a middle ground. You can't hang out in the middle. You, you, you're either, you're either, either the Lord's your master or the devil's your master. And the Lord's, when he's our master, he's our father. And he, he actually treats us with respect, invites us to, he wants us to make choices. He doesn't enslave us, Paul says. He's, he gives us the spirit of adoption, not the spirit of slavery. And so he's teaching us and coaching us and working with us. Over here, you've got a manipulator. And his job is to use, your, use uh, addictions, uh, to use your, your lusts and your greeds and your fears, to play on them, to, to, to inf inflame your anger. He's, he's going to put you in bondage to, to various drugs and alcohol and all kinds of things like that. He's going to put you in chains. And I'm going to tell you, this master always tries to kill his prey. See, ultimately, his goal is to destroy you. You have a choice of masters, but there's no place in the middle. And so Jesus comes along and he talks about the ruler of this world. By the way, Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 2. He says, it's the, he says, he says before you would belong to Christ, he said, you were under the control of the prince of the power of the air. And he said, he manipulated you and he brought you into all kinds of foul stuff. He said, you were under his control. Now you're free. Now you're free and you belong to Christ. Death, we've talked about judgment, we've talked about Satan, you notice he's, he's got them all. Death, he says, the, the fact that God's son had to die a violent death, that's really one of the things they liked the least about his preaching. Because he was enduring a curse, which God had pictured so vividly to Abraham 2,000 years earlier, shows us God's assessment of our sins. Have you ever wondered, why did Jesus have to be so savagely killed? Why was it so ugly? Why couldn't he just drink the hemlock? I mean, that worked for Socrates. You know, why did he, they have to do all of that? Couldn't we have a nice, clean death? No, and I'll tell you why. Abraham entered into a covenant with the Lord. It's in, it's in Genesis 15. He, he had just stepped out and looked at the sky and, and God said, see all stars, and he's, he, the man has no, no children, and God says, I'm going to give you children like the stars of the sky. You can't count them. And it says, Abraham believed God, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is when Abraham saved. Abraham now becomes righteous by faith. And then God says, now I'm going to enter into a covenant. You've believed me, and I'm going to make a promise to you that's inviolable. I, I, will, I will keep my promise. He says, I want you to get a heifer. I want you to get a ram. Uh, I want you to get a. I want you to get um, a turtle dove and a pigeon. I don't know, is there a sheep in there? Oh, a, a, a female sheep as well. I want you to cut them in half, and you lay the parts. And he know Abraham knows what to do. This is not uh, uh, some strange isolated event in that sense. It is a ancient Mideastern covenant ceremony. That's what they did. And by the way, did you notice the animals I listed? Those are the animals that would be sacrificed in the tabernacle and in the temple from then on. Those animals. So every time you sacrifice a sheep or a turtle dove or whatever, why, why pick those? 
Those are the ones Abraham used. So they are always, every sacrifice recalls the sacrifice, the, this covenant ceremony with Abraham. What would he do? He'd lay those, he'd lay those horrible, gory parts. You can imagine he, he didn't have good cutlery. And he's got to cut these things in half and then lay this gooey, bloody things. And, and then he would put it on a, on a, a ravine. He'd find it a ravine and put the two sides, one side, one side, one side, and have this awful uh, pathway. And then the blood and the goo would all pour into that trough, into that valley. Now, what a, what, and what a covenant ceremony would do is if you were entering the covenant with someone else, the two of you would side by side walk down that valley with the, in your bare feet with your blood all over and your, on your robes and on your feet. So you're walking through this, this gore. And as you walk, here's what you say. So be it to me if I should break my covenant with you. You are swearing to your own destruction. May, may you be cut in half. May you be destroyed like these animals. It's a, it's a very ugly thing in a sense. It's a it's solemn vow to destruction. Only Abraham didn't walk through the parts. Abraham got slain in the spirit. And he, so he's lying on his back. You know, he's just been knocked out by God. He's, he looks up at this thing and, and it says a flaming oven. In other words, a brilliant fire walked through the parts alone. Walked through the parts. God walked through the parts. What's God saying when he walks through the parts? So be it to me if you should break your covenant with me. If this covenant's broken, God's not going to break it. My promise to you, Abraham, if, it's, if, 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 if this covenant with us is broken, so be it to me. So his son was savaged like those animals. He fulfilled, this is the covenant in my blood, says Jesus. It displays what should have happened to you and me. See, this is the announcement. How, evil, how bad are your sins? That should have happened to you. How bad are my sins? That should have happened to me. It gives you no ground for, for self-satisfaction. It, it, what, is, how, what is God's opinion of you? That. No matter how good you think you are, that's what God thinks. He, it displays what should have happened. It announces how evil our deeds are in God's sight because he sees the, tr the motives of our hearts. See, that's the problem is he sees the motives. I can, I can look pretty good on the outside. Remember the story I told you of when I was, I was, I was planting a church in Arizona and I'm, in, I'm having this, a, this a depression and all and God speaks to me. And what did he say to me? He says, he says, since you're not enjoying living for yourself, I'm planting a church. Come on. You know, look at the sacrifice. He saw the motive. He saw an insecure man trying to prove himself. So what he saw. Doesn't mean I, everything I was false. Doesn't mean I didn't love the Lord. I did. I loved him. He, he was my Lord. But he knew why I was doing what I was doing. See, he knows why you're doing what you do. He goes in and he sees the very intent of the heart. Better than we even know ourselves. We, we fool ourselves. So if you have a, a, a question, what is God, what's his verdict on you? Look at the cross. That's his verdict on you and me. Jesus had to die that brutal death because there was no other way to save people like us. 
That removes all hope of self-righteousness. Number four, all. By saying, I will draw all men to myself, Jesus was declaring that his death would be for all humans, Jews and Gentiles alike. That was highly offensive to a culture that separated themselves from Gentiles. And it still violates our prejudices and exposes how little our love is toward people who are different from us or more broken than us or have rejected us. The largeness of God's heart exposes the smallness of ours. Would you read that out loud? The largeness of God's heart exposes the smallness of ours. Do you pray, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who dead against us? He just constantly stretches us to be merciful, to be loving as he is. So Jesus says, I came and if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And they know what he means. And it makes them mad. What are you saying that for? Why are you reaching people like that? He still does this. Number five, I. Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He spoke of he who believes in me and he, and he who sees me. He called himself the light of the world. He didn't simply talk about the best way to live life or how to find God. He proclaimed himself and said people must believe in him. He said the father wants everyone to love and believe in his son. And warned that the father will judge those who reject him. That's exclusive. That's offensive. It was then it is now. But pastor, I, I, I know nice people who, so do I. In my own heart, I, I, I know my Lord to be a fair Lord and kind. And I know when people haven't had a chance to hear, that's, there's a real issue there. And I know he knows that. Um, Romans 10, Paul will actually say that Israel would not be accountable before the Lord for rejecting the gospel if they had not heard and had not understood. That's Romans 10. And so people must hear, and they must, I'm not saying you're saved without it. I'm just saying God knows, and I know that the Lord will do everything he can to save every person. He wants some more than you do. He's more concerned with, with justice and care for people than you are. He's not harsh. But I know, I know that when you know, when you know who Jesus is, when you know he is who he says he is and he, what he's done, when you know that fact, you are fully accountable to it. When your heart knows the truth of it, and if you reject it, that will be held against you at the judgment day. No question about it. You are, it is not where you want to be. Number six, follow. Jesus made it painfully clear that he was calling people to something far deeper than mental assent to a doctrine. He was demanding a lifetime of obedience and selfless service. He told people that they must die daily to their own ambitions, safety, comfort, and goals. And let him direct them into ministry in the same way the Father had directed him. To say yes to that challenge required the deepest sort of surrender. It still does. It's very intimidating. In the United States, Christianity is by and large being marketed to the American public as how to get God to do for you what you need. It plays 
to our own desires. This is exactly what was going on that day. This is exactly what they, they wanted this kind of savior. They wanted someone to rise up and free them from the Romans. Wouldn't you? And if you'll do that, Jesus, we'll follow you passionately. But Jesus kept coming along and saying, no, except you be a grain of wheat that falls in the ground and dies. <laughs> you remain alone. And he says, anyone who's going to follow me is going to be where I am. And he's going to pick up his cross. And he talks about stuff like that. He wouldn't come off message and play to what they wanted to hear. Now, I'm a, I want to say this, this kindly, actually, but, it, but I'm just going to use an example. This happened a long time ago, so you have no idea who I'm talking about. It did, a long time ago. And uh, we had a conference here, and there was a, there was a, there was a, a meeting in, in Seattle uh, of one of the nationally famous uh, people, and, and they came here uh, to speak, and it filled an arena. I think there was probably ten or 15,000 people there. And someone invited me to go, well, let's go, okay. And um, this man's main message was basically, um, if, here's, here's how you, if you do these things, God will make you rich. And uh, so he, he, was, uh, he came. But that day that I, that I went, he decided to go off topic. He decided, I, I think his conscience got the better of him, he decided to talk about the love walk. So we all come in there, 10,000, 15,000 people, you know. We've come from all over the state and driven, you know, everything else. people, and, and this arena full. And he starts talking about the love walk. And that Jesus called us to love one another. It was a good message. It was, man was right on. He begins to, begins to call us to love. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a preacher. I think anybody, one of you would have sensed the same thing. The room was flat as a three-day-old soda bob. I mean, it was, it was just, they were lifeless in that room. Everybody's like, what? You know, and there was nobody, there was no amenin, there was no nothing. It was just like cold in the room. And I thought to myself, you're bombing, buddy. <laughs> this is not why they came, you know, you're all, and, and he's, he's a good public speaker. He knows what he's doing. He read the crowd and he thought, he pressed it as far as he could. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of his points on the love walk, he says, and Jesus is the high priest of the tithe. The place came alive. Electricity went through us like adrenaline, just shooting through the crowd. We were sitting up. We were, yeah, we were amen. And it was lifetime now. We came to hear how to get rich. We did not come to hear about how to love people. You're off topic, mister. I want you to show that Jesus refused to do that. He refused to change message. Now, I'll tell you, why did people come to hear Jesus if that's what he did all the time? He was an amazing healer. (laughs) I mean, you brought your sick. If they could get in line and get get near him, they'd get well. All of them. Wouldn't you go? You can see by the tens of thousands. You chase him all over the countryside. He, he can, if, you're, if your child is demon-possessed, if there's some sort of uh, horrible epilepsy or whatever's going on, that man could, could heal your child. And he was great to, li- I mean, it was interesting to listen to. He told these great parables and stories. He was fun to listen to. But he would bring up these most unpleasant topics. 
And he kept saying them, and crowds kept drifting away going, oh, you've seen it? All the way through John, we've seen it over and over again. Capernaum, same thing. If you will eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> you know, like everybody, what? You know, and I mean, he, he, knew, how to, he knew how to empty a room. He's, a, he's the best communicator that's ever walked the planet. He knows what he's doing. Why doesn't he come off topic? Why doesn't he shift with the crowd's mood? Why doesn't he give them what they want to hear? Because he loves them. And anyone who will hear him will live forever. And if he gave them what they wanted, they'll perish. That's why. Walk. He repeatedly used the word walk to describe discipleship. A walk is not one choice. That would be a step. A walk is a continuous flow of choices, one right after another. It requires commitment, endurance, and a constant supply of divine strength. To, su to succeed, a person must walk all the way to the finish line. The first step down that path is the most difficult. It requires us to trust that God will sustain us. And that he will be with us always, that he will never leave us even to the end of the age. It requires us to ignore our fears and trust his promises, and that's frightening. Darkness. Jesus called himself the light, meaning that in him we see the full revelation of the heart of God. The Son is exactly like the Father in his words and actions. John said that in him we see the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. But Jesus warned that the light he brought also presented a danger. He said darkness would overtake, seize, and bring into submission those who rejected that light. And that means that if a person understands who Jesus is and what he has done and then rejected him, that rejection will harden that person's heart and it will become more difficult to accept him the next time. Sons. Jesus made it clear that God's goal for believers was far greater than merely receiving us, pardon me, rescuing us from judgment. He said he came to make it possible for humans to become children of God. His death and resurrection would lift us up to become like him, not only in purity and character, but in glory. You realize that, don't you? You're being lifted up. You're being called to a whole another dimension. You're becoming children of God, not just saved. He came not only to justify us, but also to glorify us. He announced that we would become sons of light. As God's beloved children, we will live in the joy of his unrestrained presence forever. That is overwhelming. Jesus didn't soften or apologize for any of these truths. He stated them boldly, knowing how offensive, frightening, and wonderful they were. He presented them clearly and then let people decide how they would respond. He still does. During the course of that afternoon, Jesus used three words to describe the decisions a person must make in order to follow him. Let's ask ourselves if we have made these decisions. The first word he used was believe. This is the decision to trust that what Jesus has told us is true, that he is who he says he is, and that he has done what he says he has done. It means that we abandon every other way to salvation and make him our only hope for eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus?
If so, say I do. Number two, confess. This is the decision to openly acknowledge our faith in Jesus and accept whatever disapproval or abandonment may result. Have you and I decided to openly and faithfully confess Jesus? If so, would you say, I do? do. Number three, obey. This is the decision to live the way Jesus taught us to live in purity and selfless service to others. He said we must not only hear his sayings, we must keep them, he said. If you have chosen to live that life, to set your foot on that path, to follow him and to be his disciple, not have him help you achieve your goals, but for you to help him achieve his, you've become part of his kingdom. Would you say, I do? Lord Jesus, we commit to you this day. If we were standing there in that crowd, on that platform, and we heard you say these things, we, we, we choose, Lord, to believe. We choose to confess you. We choose to obey you. You are our Lord and Savior, our reward. He didn't leave us with only the challenge to believe, confess, and obey. He also left us with the promise, promises of how God will respond to those who choose rightly. He said that person will receive, first of all, truth. They will not walk in darkness. God will light their path. That means they won't stumble. And by following that path, they will fulfill the plans God has for them. He will light his path for you. I I can't emphasize this enough. There is a path for you. You have been designed for his service. He has fruitfulness for you. And when you and I choose to walk in truth, we walk in the light he gives us. He puts that light on the path and then we don't stumble. We begin to walk down a path that's fruitful. Paul says that you and I have been created uh, as his workmanship uh, for good works that, we sh- that have been ordained by God that we should walk in them. You have, I have. We've been created by God where his, his handiwork that we should walk in the path he has for us. The man or woman who, who chooses to walk in the light will find truth lights their path. Number two, approval. John is actually the one who used this word, but there is no doubt who taught it to him. When God approves someone, he sends his abiding presence, which brings into that person's life peace, shalom, and power for ministry. You might say he will make his face to shine upon you. You have those moments with the Lord when you begin to, when you, when you choose to follow him, that you say, uh, this is what I was created for. This is what I'm alive. I, I just know I'm now doing what God made me to do. You have that wonderful sense of his approval. And number three, honor. That means God will bless us in this life. But even more than that, it means that we will someday hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Is there anything you want more than that? Someone just asked me that question. I was, I was at a thing and, and they said, uh, if you were to stand before Jesus, what would, you, what, what would you want to know from him? And I think they thought I might ask, like, I want to know where the Ark of the Covenant is hidden. <laughs> but I already know. <laughs> no, um, 
I have read books that do. Anyway, um, I'll tell you, I said, I said honestly, there aren't, I, I think at that point there wouldn't be a lot of questions like that, but I said I, I would want to hear this. I would want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I love him. I'm saved. I, I'm not wondering, am I saved? I'm not wondering, am I going to heaven? I just want to know, Lord, did I do what you wanted? Did I do it right, Lord? Did I please you? Why? Because I love him. Because I want to use it well. Do you want to use your life well? He has, a, he, he, he has that for us. And that's, that's the honor. Aren't we grateful that Jesus taught us these truths? These unchangeable truths? Had he softened or removed certain ones, we would never have had the opportunity to believe them, to confess him, and to obey. Now he asks you and me to present the same truths to others so that they too can become children of God. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful to you that you lovingly and boldly refused to come off message. That you didn't tell us what we wanted to hear. You told us what we needed to hear. You are, you, we, we honor you. We present to you tender hearts, Lord. Things we don't understand, all of it, we still believe it because you said it. So come, Lord, help us be men and women who are like you, who can kindly and lovingly, but truthfully, not come off message, not deny you, not hide you, not be ashamed of you, but speak the truth in love. Give us that grace, O oh God, even this season as people are awakened. Just give us grace. We ask for divine appointments and opportunities to share you as you will lead us. We love you, Lord. We honor you this day. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.